Welcome everyone to Progressive Christian Voices today and tomorrow. My name is Brian Elaine, and I'm the founder of Compassionate Christianity and Writing for Your Life. It's a pleasure to host this series of uh, prominent progressive Christian authors and activists. Uh, today is the eighth webinar in the series, and we will have additional webinars later this year. So joining us today are Diana Butler-Bass, Robert P. Jones, and Lamar Hardwick. Diana Butler-Bass is an award-winning author, popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted communicators on religion and contemporary spirituality. She holds a doctorate of religious studies from Duke University and is the author of 11 books, including her latest, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as a Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Her bylines include the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN.com, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just about every major newspaper and just about every major TV outlet. So I won't list all of those either. <laughs> She's received two Wilbur Awards for Best Nonfiction Book of the Year, awards from Religion News Association for Book of the Year, and Publisher Weekly's Best Religion Book of the Year. Diana was also contributed to our recent book, How to Heal Our Divides, A Practical Guy. Thank you very much, Diana. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, also known as PRRI, and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture, and politics. He's the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, which won a 2021 American Book Award. And if you watch the Compassionate Christianity and How to Heal Our Divides blogs, you will see uh, periodic excerpts from, uh, from his book. <coughs> Robbie writes regularly on politics, culture, and religion for The Atlantic Online, NBC, and other outlets. He's frequently featured in major national media, such as CNN, MSNBC, NPR, The New York Times, and many others. He's also the author of The End of White Christian America, which won the 2019 Grauwier Award in Religion. He holds a PhD in religion from Emory University, an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a BS in computer science and mathematics, yay, from uh, Mississippi College. I was an engineer once upon a time. <laughs> Robbie was selected by Emory University's Graduate Division of Religion as Distinguished Alumnus in the year of 2013, and by Mississippi College's Mathematics Department as Alumnus of the year 2016. He served on the National Program Committee for the American Academy of Religion. Finally, raised in a military family, Lamar Hardwick, was privileged to travel the world as a young age with his siblings and parents. After graduating high school in El Paso, Texas, Lamar enrolled and attended Concordia University, Wisconsin, where he graduated a bachelor's in criminal justice. Lamar would go on to graduate with an MDiv from Emory University, as well as a, as well as a D-Min from Liberty University. Over the years, Lamar has served as a youth pastor, hospice chaplain, football coach, and pastor. His most important role is serving his wife and their three beautiful children. In 2014, after years of silently struggling with social anxiety and sensory processing disorder and a host of other significant issues, Lamar was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. He was 36 years at the time. He's had articles published by various autism and disability websites, such as The Mighty, The Huffington Post, Key Ministry, and the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, to name a few. Lamar is the author of the best-selling book, I Am Strong, The Life and Journey of an Autistic Pastor. He's also contributing to our upcoming second book in the How to Heal Our Divide series. So thank you all so much for joining us. It's such a wonderful um, opportunity to just spend some time together. Um, I've been loving these um, webinars where, you know, I just get to hang out with like really smart, thoughtful, caring people, and I appreciate your time greatly. So um, with all of that said, um, I'll be asking the uh, panelists a series of questions, but if you'd like to do that as well, you know, feel free to type something into the Q&A box on the Zoom portal. So to start off, maybe each of you could just begin a little bit by talking about some of your more recent work uh, before we get into future work later on. So uh, Diana, would you like to go first? Well, I've been working on... Um a couple of different things during the pandemic. One is that I have been sort of feeling my, my wings with uh, writing a newsletter called The Cottage. And uh, The Cottage is not just a newsletter, you know, where people get something in their box uh, once a week or what have you, but I've been trying to create community and trying to figure out ways of connecting people with good ideas 
and just being a presence in people's lives during these difficult times. So that's been a great project. And I've watched it grow. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the year and a half, two years I've had it, it's tripled in size. And it's caused me to meet a lot of really great people and sort of test out my own writing and new topics in a, con- in, in a really uh, warm and uh, good environment. So one of the things I love about newsletter writing is there's no ads and there are no trolls. <laughs> so it's a better place to be than, than Twitter sometimes. So I've been working on that project and, and people who follow me or get the newsletter know that it's been a big part of my life over the last two years. Um, the other thing that I uh, have been doing is I had a new book come out last March uh, called Freeing Jesus, and the paperback comes out in just a couple of weeks. Mm. And that book was the concluding book in a project that really started 10 years ago when I wrote a book called Christianity After Religion. And in that book, um, Robbie, I was on Robbie's board at PRRI, and I got to see a lot of early data about the way in which religion was changing um, in the United States. And it was sort of Robbie's data and my relationship with him and the people at PRRI that began to really um, change my perception of what was going to happen with religious organizations and institutions in the future. And so Christianity After Religion, published in 2012, was the first book where I really was starting to tackle all of that. And what followed were three other books that picked up distinctive aspects of Christianity after religion. Um, And Freeing Jesus is the last book um, in that project. And what Freeing Jesus explores is the question of how do we believe? And um, in Freeing Jesus, I tell my own story, um, how I believe in Jesus and how I, my, my experience with Jesus changed over time. So, so anyway, it's uh, been a really amazing arc of books, and um, it's, it's been a privilege to take a decade and dive into uh, religious trends in some surprisingly quirky and, I think, innovative ways. Well, I mean, you didn't mention it, but, you know, Grounded and Grateful, you know, were, were part of that uh, series, which were both, you know, amazing uh, wonderful books. And so, um, you know, and, and, the, and the Substack, you know, the emails that you're, you're just wonderful too, you know, very uh, thoughtful and you you can tell you're putting a lot of time into that. So I, I am, it's become a halftime job. <laughs> I spend 20 to 25 weeks on my newsletter alone. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So Robbie, how about you? Uh, what's the latest in your world and, and, and PRI's world? Oh, thanks. Well, I'm really glad to be here. Um, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to, uh, let me just give Diana a plug uh, before I jump into me. Um, yeah, you should all, everyone listening should sign up for Diana's Substack. Uh, and it's dianabutlerbass.substack.com. Uh, so uh, that's how you can get there. Um, it's, it's absolutely worth your time. Um, she's spending a lot of time uh, yeah, putting her heart and soul into it. And you can tell um, when it comes through, that's not just your dry, you know, kind of summary or whatever, but it's really thoughtful um, uh, and something that enriches my reading every week. So um, I'm going to give that plug out there. Um, uh, so uh, I have been, uh, so, you know, my day job is uh, as a CEO of uh, PRRI. So we've continued to be doing a lot of research at the intersection of kind of religion, culture, and politics. Um, we've actually, um, so I'll start there, but um, we have um, kind of reorganized our work over the next few years under this umbrella of religion and renewing democracy, um, given the threats that we're seeing uh, to the country, particularly the threats of white Christian nationalism uh, that we're seeing uh, to the country. Um, Under that bigger umbrella, we're um, kind of doing four buckets of work. One of them is in pluralism. Uh, uh, The second one is in, in, in kind of a pluralist democracy. The second one is uh, racial justice and white supremacy. Uh, third one is um, immigration, uh, and the, the fourth one is uh, LGBTQ uh, rights uh, and those kind of big buckets of, of stuff. So that's what's going on at PRRI. We'll continue to do a lot of interesting new survey work uh, there this year. Um, uh, and, and in addition, doing one thing that's kind of closer to my own personal writing, uh, a big project with E Unum uh, Fund, 
uh, where we're going to be looking at attitudes in 13 southern states on inclusive civic spaces. So not just the kind of removal of Confederate monuments and monuments to white supremacy, but what does a more inclusive public space look like? Um, in the South. Um, so uh, I'm excited about that. Um, in terms personal writing, uh, so I, you know, my last book was uh, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, um, where, um, like Diana, for the first time, I, I wrote rather personally um, in that book. So that book has a lot of data in it, um, uh, but it's written for a, a public audience, uh, and it really has a lot of my own families and my own personal uh, journey um, on kind of coming to terms with how white supremacy has been entangled and embedded uh, in the DNA of, of white Christianity um, for really all of the country's history and, and what that means for us uh, today if we take that um, quite seriously. Um, so, and like Diane, I've been writing out of that work um, weekly, um, also on Substack. Um, uh, so mine's robertpjones.substack.com. Uh, uh, but I'm writing really at this intersection of race and, uh, and religion uh, and really thinking hard about, um, you know, as we kind of go through the year, I've been trying to take either holidays or um, items out of the news and then doing some kind of real-time reflection, uh, uh, you know, from, from what, what it means to me and kind of what this journey I've been on, um, what kind of things I'm seeing. Uh, as a result um, of that. And um, so that, that's, that, I think that pretty much covers the uh, kind of the big picture uh, for me. So um, I also subscribed to Robbie's uh, Substack. Uh, and uh, just this week, there was an email that he posted about discomfort that yeah. um, Brian, yeah, white discomfort. Yeah. Brian McLaren um tweeted it and then I tweeted it and posted it and everything. So I'm sure that's getting a lot of good exposure because it was a really, really good article. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, I don't know if any of you know this marketing guru by the name of David Merriman Scott, but he, um, he coined this phrase newsjacking, which is describing what you're, what you described a moment ago, Robbie, where you kind of look at, okay, what's a hot topic that's like right now I need to write about it. So hijack the news, so to speak. Uh, so for anyway, anybody that's interested in marketing jargon, that uh, newsjacking is <laughs> what Robbie's doing. So that's a really good thing. Really good idea. So Lamar, what's the latest in your neck of the woods? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I actually uh, released a book um, on disability in the church um, last February uh, with InterVarsity Press. So actually it'll be a year old next month. Um, and so we've been getting really good responses with that. Um, and so I've actually, uh, in that book, just taken some time to incorporate some of my personal story, but also um, to sort of help the church to understand um, about disability and about the lack of inclusion um, in the church historically and even currently. Um, but from the unique perspective of um, as a person who uh, has a developmental disability, but who's also a pastor, um, but also have some uh, scholarship behind it. So, and then the, the most unique um, part of that um, book, and I didn't get into it as much as uh, I would have liked to, so it's uh, saving that for a future project, but talking about the intersection between disability and race um, and how um, there's a conversation there that needs to take place um, but I'll share more about that in my upcoming work. Um, and then also I, I had to put this down. Um, for those who don't know, fall of last year, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. I'm happy to report um, that after about a year of treatment, I'm cancer free now. Um, but that caused me to have to put down some other projects, one of which at the time was a podcast that I started called the Autism Pastor Podcast, uh, where you sort of got my take on uh, all things uh, religion and culture uh, through the lens and eye of somebody living with a developmental disability um, and trying to just engage in the culture from a different perspective. So hopefully uh, now that I'm better, I'm hoping to pick that back up this summer um, because we're getting really good, good traction with that until I had to sort of set that to decide to, to finish treatment. So that's kind of what's going on uh, with me currently. Well, good for you. I'm glad your health is, is better. And um 
you know, I think you're working in some areas that just don't get enough attention, you know, and I'm really glad to see that you're, and, and I'm glad to hear you know, about the IVP book and, um, you know, really encourage you to, to continue that work. So, so thank you for that. So um, one of the things I know you all are well-read folks too, uh, in addition to writing your own books. So I'd love to hear what you've been reading lately that you'd like to share with people that's had an impact uh, for you. So Robbie, do you want to go first on that one? Sure. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, and Lamar, let me just say I'm happy to be on here and make the connection with you. I think like Diane, I've been following you on Twitter. Uh, so it's nice to actually get connected uh, here, you know, face to face. So, you know, I, I've been reading pretty widely. Um, I'm, I'm realizing uh, I know so little about history. <laughs> um, and so I've been like, uh, despite having a PhD uh, and really trying to re-educate myself. And, and the, one of the, the areas I know the least about is Reconstruction, uh, this era right after the Civil War um, that was completely left out of my high school, college, and graduate uh, programs. Um, I got I, virtually nothing um, uh, on that. So I'm reading uh, Eric Foner, David Blight, um, uh, to historians on, on this, this front. And then more, more recently reading two that I'd recommend. Um, I just posted something this week actually, um, about their books on Substack is, um, uh, Dante Stewart's, uh, Shouting in the Fire, uh, young scholar who's, who's, uh, actually still finishing his MDiv, uh, program at Candler School of Theology, um, uh, down in Atlanta, my alma mater, uh, at Emory University. Uh, and then uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, who has a new book um, out, uh, Resurrection Hope, um, A Future Where Black Lives Matter, um, who Kelly wears so many hats. Um, uh, she is the dean of the uh, Episcopal Divinity School. Um, she is the um, dean of the Washington uh, National Cathedral, uh, theologian and residence at Trinity uh, um, in New York. Um, uh, but, but she is just an amazing, uh, thoughtful person. And, and I think the, the thing about that book, uh, and, and I think both of those books actually is that they, uh, don't look away from the difficult kind of divisive, tough times that we find ourselves in. Uh, but they also look, um, forward, I think with some hope, um, uh, for a better future, not without a lot of work, um, on our part, it's not something magical that's going to come about, but, um, but the possibility, um, you know, if we all do our jobs, uh, that we can actually get to a, a better place. Excellent. Well, I just did uh, book launch interviews with both Dante and, and Kelly uh, recently, so I really appreciate those books as well. Lamar, how about you? What has been on your reading list lately? Yeah, that, that list is long. I didn't mention that I'm um, doing a second doctorate. I'm doing a Ph.D., um, so my reading list is long these oh, days. Oh my, that's serious. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, but, um, uh, outside of that, just in my own research as I'm preparing to do some, um, some other writing is, it's really two books. I set them to the side here. One is, um, the Mark of Slavery by Jennifer Barclay. Um, and I think it released the sometime last year or the end of last year um really important book uh the subtitle is disability race and gender in antebellum america and so she does a really good job as a historian and it's actually i think in a series of books uh called disability histories uh which i've gotten all the books i've read most of them but um she, she talks about this intersection between race and disability and how disability really disability as a category has been used historically in all cultures to sort of define culture itself. So you have uh, those bodies that are considered optimal and then everything that's considered right and true and good is the antithesis of that. Well, you see that really uh, interwoven into slavery, especially in antebellum, uh, in the antebellum South. So uh, she talks really a lot about, um, you know, how disability was used to perpetuate racism um, and sort of the influences that um, even both sides, pro-slavery and abolitionists, use disability as their way of justifying their positions. So there's kind of always been this uh, connection between disability and race that I think we probably need to explore a little bit more deeply. 
Uh, and then a second one, I, I haven't finished one. I just started this. It's called The Minority Body um, by Jennifer, or I'm sorry, Elizabeth Barnes. Um, it's a theory of disability. Um, and really her thesis, I have just started. I'm only a couple chapters in. Her thesis is that uh, disability um, and those disabled bodies are really, in effect, minority bodies uh, because they they function in ways that are in the minority. Um, if we're going to define some kind of normativity in the way that bodies function, so it's it's heavily uh, influenced by feminist theory. But a lot of the work that I'm doing now in my PhD uh, is to sort of take from some of these other theories, especially as they relate to theology and understanding um, the symbolism and the imagery and the ways in which uh, even religion has, and particularly Christianity in America has had a um, really a stronghold on definitions of disability, but I'll talk a little bit more about that in future projects. Mm, wow. Wow. Good for you. A lot of heavy um, lifting there. <laughs> did you say where you're getting your second doctorate? I, I may have missed that. I didn't. I'm, I'm doing a program at Union Institute and University. Um, particularly because of their strong emphasis on social justice, but also they have a uh, Dr. Martin Luther King legacy study specialization. So that's what attracted me there. So I'm putting all that into the pot uh, and stirring it up and see what I can come out with as far as research. Wonderful. Wonderful. So Diana, how about you? What have you been reading lately? Um, I've been reading two political memoirs which are interesting books. One is um, Adam Schiff's book, Midnight in Washington, and the other one is Jamie Raskin's book, Unthinkable. And um, I just wanted to continue on in my, my interest in memoir writing, which I, I think is very interesting theme of this conversation, is that um, all three of us have gotten to places in our writing and the way, of course, we see issues through memoir, which I think is a really important um, thing for progressive Christians to be aware of, is this sort of elevation of personal story and the empowerment of personal story as a place for making theology and as also the birthplace of activism. So, so anyway, I just wanted to think about January 6th. Um, at the beginning of this year. So I, I picked up these two political memoirs um, that are basically focused on January 6th. And I, I think that as I've been reading through them, it's really strengthened my, my, my passion and commitment to the importance of memoir writing, not just only in theology, but also how important memoir is to po politics, just outright political um, understandings. And as I've read re been reading them, it also occurred to me that both uh, Rus Raskin and Schiff are both Jewish. And so now I've been going back to these books that I've been working on, just kind of reading through and thinking about as political books, but trying to sort of interrogate them and ask questions about how their Jewishness uh, shows up. And there are different parts in the books where they are very self-conscious about that. And other parts of the books, I think they're less self-conscious about it. And that, that brings me to sort of the second thing that I've been doing is that uh, this year I turned 63, which I find almost impossible to believe. Um, and I've been studying the history of Christianity since I was 18 <laughs> as a formal subject in, in school and uh, teaching it and everything else. And, and that means I it's kind of a little dull, you know, <laughs> right now. And, uh, and one of the ways that I've been sort of spicing up my understanding of what Christianity is, is to go back. And I've been reading a lot of Jewish stuff, mm -hmm. um, books uh, by Heschel, uh, thinking about Martin Buber, talking to friends of mine who are rabbis, re-examining the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, looking at a lot of the development of early Christianity and also the relationship between Christianity and Judaism in the Middle Ages. So uh, in effect, I'm taking a field that I know extraordinarily well and feel like, uh, you know, what else is there to learn and looking at it from a completely different set of eyes. And that is looking at the history of Christianity more from the perspective of Judaism. So it's just challenging myself to go a different direction with it. Hey, Brian, before we go on, I just want to 
uh, follow on there. Um, so Jamie Raskin is my neighbor. Um, oh, that's and, right. And and my rep my representative um, in, in Tacoma Park, uh, Maryland. Um, and I just want to say how real that was last year, where he had to have uh, Secret Service and marked police cars outside of his house in our neighborhood for weeks on end uh, because of the death threats that he was receiving for the leadership that he took in the impeachment uh, uh, of, of, uh, of Donald Trump uh, and uh, in his outspoken, you know, things he said after January 6th. I mean, so it, it came home very, very, very close to home, um, you know, in, in, uh, in those very concrete ways. I had, to, I had to take a different route. I usually drive by his house on my way almost everywhere, just getting out of the neighborhood. And I would regularly take a different route just because I knew there would, it would be clogged with uh, Secret Service and police cars. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, I don't think about political memoir as one of the things that I typically want to read. But this, so that's really interesting to hear, Diana, that, you know, that you're di diving into the area. And I'm sure they're very interesting books. So mm -hmm. cool. So let's shift on to kind of like, you know, we have a huge laundry list of bad things going on, right? <laughs> um, in a lot of different directions, but I'd love to hear from each of you kind of like what you think is the biggest thing that we should be paying attention to now yeah, as progressive Christians and what we could do about, you know, whatever that issue is. So um, I know it's a tough kind of a big issue kind of a thing, but, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts. You're all great thinkers. So Lamar, do you want to start off on that one? Yeah. Um, so many things, right? I think um, if I were to kind of stay in my lane of my interests and my research and even my lived experience, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm finding in my research and this is probably um, common knowledge, although I don't know that we think of it, um, readily when we think about some of the racial issues uh, that we have historically and even that continue to exist in this country. Um, but again, again, going back to what I stated before, there's a huge connection between race and disability. Uh, and I think uh, if we zoom out and we understand um, that a lot of the racial issues that sort of started us on this trajectory and the founding of this nation are more closely linked to issues of disability than I think we have understood or would like to have believed. So sort of my thesis on one of the things that I think we really need to be um, understanding better and addressing better is the issues of disability rights and, and justice as it has shaped tremendously um, the racial issues that we have in this country because uh, if you go all the way back to a lot of research I've done all the way back to the early 1600s, right? Um, like even earlier Puritan theology was shaped, this race was shaped um, by an understanding of the fact that black and brown bodies were less able um, than white bodies. So there's a huge connection there that I think we've separated the two. Um, the disability rights movement was a child of the civil rights movement. But I think if if we're really going to tackle this issue, we've got to uncover some of the roots of it. And I, I contend that uh, racism cannot exist apart from ableism. Uh, and so I think that's an issue that always feels secondary to the to the race issue. But I think they're very much intertwined. I'd, I'd like to see us, uh, particularly as Christians, dig into that a little bit more deeply and understand that this is prior prioritization of bodies and body types and the bodies of work that come from particular uh, bodies. That is part of the reason why we continue to have this, um, these issues that we have. So that's a, a lot to think about. Um, but I do think we find a clearer path forward as far as dealing with race issues if we don't make disability a secondary issue to that. I, I really agree with you, Lamar. And I think that's an area that you know, I certainly know that I don't understand well, and I think it's not been um, covered well. So, you know, good for you for doing, you know, some scholarship and research in that area. And, uh, I look forward to, you know, learning more. <laughs> so, Diana, how about you? What, what, what do you think is the, the big thing that we need to worry about the most or can do the most about? Um, well, the, I think those are two different things. 
what I'm worried about the most and what we can do something about or <laughs> maybe yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree with you. <laughs> two different questions. Um, certainly, the thing I'm worried the most about is the nature of truth. I mean, I, I don't know how we get anywhere on any specific issues while the, the very nature of what counts as real is being changed, undermined, turned upside down, inside out, and upset every single day. And that's happening from a variety of sources. I mean, it's happening from disinformation. It's happening from AI. It's happening from technological innovation. I think it's happening from the, uh, the way simply we tell stories, that we don't understand the past. Um, and so there's this upheaval um, in human consciousness right now uh, where n none of us really understand the ground that we are occupying um, with what we used to call truth or shared reality or what have you. So that's the thing I'm the most worried about is how do we get to any capacity to navigate what is truthful um, and, and how do we begin to even make those definitions so that we can have conversations with other people that are meaningful, that result in change that allows other people to flourish, allows the planet to survive and thrive. So, so that's the big thing <laughs> that I'm, I'm really worried about. And, and I guess there are little things that I'm do, trying to do about it. You know, I mean, I'm not a world-class philosopher where I can kind of sit and arrive at the answer and then dump an 800-page book on you all and have, the, have it fixed. Um, but I do think that history has something to do with this. Um, and right now, we are clearly part of the argument about reality is how we perceive the past and who gets to tell the stories of the past. And I love what Lamar just said, because in a very real sense, my understanding of history is um, the stories we tell about bodies that have gone before us. Um, and so it, it, it's like, well, well, who counted then? And I'm getting ready to do a series of two lectures for General Theological Seminary, which is the oldest seminary in the Episcopal Church um, in New York next month. And those are on the relationship between telling stories of the past and the identities we make now in the present. And uh, I'm going to be arguing there that the Episcopal Church, just one small you know, corner of our religious landscape, um, has a bad tendency to tell history only as that of, of established authorities. So we tell history about buildings, we tell history about institutions, we tell histories about, about bishops. And um, I'm going to challenge that by telling some histories from the bottom up, uh, a history of my own family in Eastern Shore, Maryland, that I've uncovered, which is really interesting. It's the history about slaveholding and accommodation and, and all kinds of other things. And then also a story about a woman in New York who was a fairly well-off woman who nevertheless sort of challenged all the sort of general theologically accepted categories of Episcopal history in the 19th century. And um, so, so who gets to tell those stories? What history do, what history takes, uh, it has real space in the public sphere. So, so, you know, that's part of an argument going on around, I think, critical race theory, um, certainly what Lamar was just talking about, about disability and race. And, I, and Robbie mentioned history a moment ago, too. So big issue, the problem of what is true, little place that Diana has some control over being able to do something about it in terms of my own work is the telling of history and and presenting the questions of history in ways that people can grapple with them meaningfully in their own communities. Well, I know based on some of our conversations last fall, you've got some great stories to tell about, you know, the personal history that you uh, were referring to a moment. So I won't ask you to spoil those at this point, but um, the <laughs> lectures that you mentioned, are they always going to be broadcast at all or available online in any way? 
Yeah, it's one of the oldest lecture series, actually, in the Episcopal Church. And a lot of really wonderful Anglican theologians have done it over the years. And it's called the Paddock Lectures. Hmm. And uh, there, I think they've got like 50 spaces available in New York City. Uh, we had to limit the amount of people because of COVID. But I will be up there. We will be doing it um, with a limited on-site audience that's uh, very well protected and vaccinated. And um, then it will be available on uh, live streamed. And, and I don't know about afterwards online recorded, but I'm sure it probably will be. You would think, so, right? Yeah. yeah I'll so look at, anyone would be invited in that sense. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into it and post it, you know, to the notes on the um, video here today if I, if I can find something about it. I think it's the 15th and 16th or the 16th and 17th of February. Okay, cool. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Robbie, how about you? What's, what's the big issue that uh, you... Uh, want to discuss yeah well let me first just say amen and amen um to those things i'm afraid i'm not going to bring anything wildly different to the table um but but uh let me just reiterate that um well first of all let me just say this like i am generally an optimistic person uh i am the glass half full i am you know uh not easily shaken personally i'm not a conspiracy theorist um it takes a lot to get me rattled uh, and I am deeply concerned about where we are as a country, about where we are um, in our churches, um, and in a, in, a, in a way that I, I really haven't been, and, and I'm a little younger than Diana, but not much, um, so in my more than five decades on the planet, um, just have not been, um, you know, and, and I, I think we all have to kind of take this seriously, um, you know, that you know, we take the old metaphors of you know, the canaries uh, in the coal mine. I mean, I think we've got uh, several cages of keeled over birds um, that we're looking at, you know, and we can choose to carry on business as usual, or we can choose to take the signs that are mounting all around us um, and literally the bodies that are mounting um, all, all around us uh, and, and realize that we're a, re a real inflection point um, in our nation's history. And I think that's why issues of history are coming, you know, back to the fore. And I do think we're at a moment um, that really matters. You know, there, there, there are these times, you know, when I think uh, kind of history does present us with some openings. They're usually around, um, you know, uh, like the Civil War, um, the 1920s, where we had like an economic crisis and people coming back from World War One and an epidemic, a, another pandemic. Um, you know, there was um, kind of all kinds of racial violence. The rise of the KKK erupts in that moment. Um, the second rise of the KKK erupts in that moment in our, in our history. The civil rights movement in the 1960s, Reconstruction back in the 1870s, um, you know, and I think we're in another one of those moments where, you know, there's a kind of fork in the road um, that is ahead of us here. And, you know, we have an opportunity, um, I would say, in a way that you know, an opening, an opportunity to seize, if we all seize it, uh, that can actually put the country on a different path, um, you know, than it has cho chosen in so many ways. Um, and and we're, we're experiencing, I think, 2020, the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations around the country, the toppling of Confederate monuments that have been there for over 100 years, um, you know, are all real signs, you know, that something new is happening. And just demographically speaking, I mean, you know, uh, my first trade book uh, back in 2016 was talking about, uh, it's called The End of White Christian America, right? And that was about a real shift uh, in the story that the country was telling about itself um, as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, right? A country that was for, built by and for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That was the mythology. Um, and we're still seeing that. Uh, you know, rearing its head head today. Um, you know, just this week uh, in in Virginia, um, you know, we we've got uh, uh, the the governor of Virginia putting out a, a hotline for people to report teachers uh, that are teaching something uh, that might upset white people and might make them uncomfortable. We got a Florida bill that's actually making the issue of white discomfort the measure of discrimination, the legal definition of discrimination is white discomfort. Uh, in this bill that's that's moving forward um, in Florida. Uh, and so we are seeing, I think, a real um, uh, alignment of forces trying to hang on to this older mythology about a white Christian America. And, and but it's, it is a reaction, I think, to this other narrative breaking 
forth, right? So is it 1776 or is it 1619? Uh, this is kind of, in some ways, an easy way to kind of distill down the um, the debates. And, and how are we going to tell this more honest history? And I think it's the most critical thing uh, there. It's where my work is going. Uh, it's where PRI's work is going, is how do we tell the truth? It really does come down to that. It's not about critical race theory. It's not about uh, you know, some esoteric thing. It really is whether we have the fortitude and the integrity to tell the truth about our history. And there's no way we're going to have any way, any healthy way forward unless we're willing to tell the truth, the whole truth about our history. And, and if you're white and if you're Christian, um, in many ways, that's an unpleasant truth. But it also means that that white Christians have something uh, to bring to the future uh, as well, but only by, I think, facing facing our past. Are we going to be able to have uh, the tools to do that? Well, as you mentioned, Robbie, that's an opportunity. It's a huge opportunity, right? We just have to take it, right? And, and fortunately, there's growing momentum and a lot of people like you all that, you know, are helping to drive that. So, so um, question from um, one of the folks uh, attending. Uh, James is asking, in society today, which do you think is the deeper problem in America, racism or classism? Ours seems to be not so much a democracy, but almost an autocratic democracy. Um, who wants to take that one first? <laughs> I'd just like to um, say that these things are connected I, I don't know that you can ever say one is more than the other. It's like saying, what's, what's more important, the per persecution against women or persecution against people of color? You know, it's like, well, what about women of color? You know, <laughs> it's like, so, so that's the dividing of these things is actually, I think, part of the strategy to keep the, the people from coming together and, co and, and coalescing and really moving in a direction to make positive change. So, so I, 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 I kind of think we should reject the, the divisions. But behind both of those things are hierarchies. Um, living in a universe that is hierarchically structured, that some things are on top and some things are on bottom. Some people should be in control and some people should be the rule. So it doesn't almost even matter which ism you put in there. Behind both of them are hierarchies of privilege and power that enable some people to maintain control and wealth and other people to be kept down. And um, what we do with those hierarchies is we often reify them through religion. Um, and uh, that is just deeply problematic throughout all of history. So, so when I try to you know, think about, do I want to be moving towards environmental sort of hierarchies or, you know, I have friends who are in animal rights and humans on top and, you know, animals on the bottom and classism and, and all these different things. I think how is this, the bigger structural issue behind all this, the use of hierarchy, um, how, do I, how do I go at that is, is the is always my question. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Dan. I mean, to me, it all boils down to greed for power. You know, it's that's what's driving the racism, the classism, everything else. Greed for power. Others. Yeah. Some of them are more obvious and more evil than others. Mm -hmm. And and I think like Lamar working to combine two of them into a single thing. See, there's a lot of power in that because yeah. you're pointing out the bigger <clears throat> problem that's behind it. And if you if you leverage these 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 bigotries, these prejudices, these horrible ways of demeaning people, if you leverage them rightly, I think, in certain kinds of movements, you do have the capacity to undermine these kinds of authoritarian hierarchies that have that are so busily rebuilding themselves right now. Okay, yeah. Mar, you want to comment on this? Yeah. Yeah, I'll quickly add, 100% um, agree. I think it's too difficult to sort of parse those out. And so in response to what Dinah said, my question is always um, in these systems of power and hierarchy, who benefits the most? Who's the most burdened by the system, whether you're talking about racism or, or classism or any ism? 
And then um, the third question I always ask myself is who gets to define who is on which side? Um, and so, you know, when you kind of approach it from that way, it's, it's kind of difficult to parse them out because there's someone who's benefiting this. There's a group or groups of people who are most burdened by that system. And then there's a group of people, oftentimes the ones who are benefiting from it that are deciding who gets to be on either side of the spectrum. And I think that's, uh, at least for me, a, a more helpful way of trying to attack those problems is saying, you know, kind of like the old saying is, you know, follow the money. Well, follow the the benefit. Who's who's actually benefiting from it? And and I think from there we can start to try to unravel it all together. Robbie, you have anything else to add? Uh, I'll just be quick. Um, I think that's really wise. Like who's benefiting? who's carrying the burden. I mean, and, and inevitably the answers to those questions are going to be multi-layered, right? It's gender, it's race, it's ability, it's class. Um, you know, they're all kind of wrapped up. Um, I will, the only one thing I will say, I do think progressives have a harder time. Um, I, I think many, many progressives have read enough marks that they have an easier time with the class uh, piece. And like, there was a big debate in 2016 it got a lot of ink got spilled over whether it was like economic anxiety or cultural anxiety that drove support for Trump. That's the way the debate got framed as if, again, you could really separate, you know, those two things out um, sufficient or efficiently. Um, and you, you can't, I mean, even numerically, and we crunch the data, they are both there as independent predictors, right. Of, uh, of, of support. Uh, for Trump among whites. Uh, so uh, having uh, economic anxieties and having cultural anxieties. But he, but one thing uh, that the data does say is that um, the, and this is something I hope progressives take in, is that the cultural anxiety piece, that is the anti-immigrant sentiment, the anti-black sentiment, the Islamophobic sentiment, those things were three times as powerful as the economic anxieties in predicting support for Trump. That was the leading edge Right. And the other stuff kind of came along along with it. And I think taking that you know, seriously as part of, again, where we're at um, in, in the country uh, today um, that, you know, we have a major. And, and I think it's so, you know, I, I lead a, a nonpartisan research organization. And I think journalists who are also pride themselves in being objective and impartial also have hard time with this. But when the data points it out, like you have to be willing to say there is one political party in this country, the Republican Party, that has built its base on 50 years of a Southern strategy that has stoked white resentment for half a century. And we are seeing the fruits of that labor uh, being delivered right in front of us. And it should be no big surprise when you have half a century of a political strategy and billions of dollars being spent kind of stoking this mindset uh, among, uh, among many whites that something's being taken away from them, right? Their country is being taken away from them by these others. Um, and that, that's really what we're, we're, we're reckoning with the kind of absolute disaster that that has been. I always recommend uh, people read Heather Cox, Richards, Heather Cox Richardson's book, How the South Won the Civil War, um, because it's very much about the interconnections of, issues related to race, gender, class, et cetera, and that Southern strategy that uh, Robbie just talks about and how that was executed over uh, not even just the last 50 years, but really over the last 150 years. Um, and and uh, it's a brilliant book. It, it's a very, very, very helpful history um, in understanding this this. Question. Mm, mm, wow. So here's a question from the audience from a different direction. Um, Jenny says, I'm very interested in body and theology. Excuse me. Let me start over. I'm very interested in body theology and image of God. I'd like to know how Lamar and Robert think about disability in the context of the image of God. I feel it shows us more of God, not less. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a huge question um so, so one i would say if you've never read um a seminal work in disability theology would be nasty eastland's the disabled god um i 
talk about that a little bit in my book and piggyback off of it. But in, in future works, I really want to dig it. As a matter of fact, the next book I'm working on, I'm digging a whole chapter um, to one of the chapters in her book that talks about it. Um, so what I'll say, and I often teach this in uh, seminars, I've done some guest lectures at different universities. Um, I start with uh, the incarnation uh, as being one of the core parts of Christianity. And so for me, what I like to share is that um, the incarnation shows us that our best, the best way um, to interpret God's character, God's intentions um, is through embodiment, right? And what Natalie Eason would say is um, that God is disabled because she talks about the, the marks that Jesus continues to um, hold on to after his resurrection. And so he reverses death, um, but the, the marks of impairment that would have been disabling physically, um, he doesn't reverse those. So there's, so there's this notion that there's no need. Jesus doesn't ask to be fixed, right? Even though we know that there's a supernatural ability to reverse death, but he doesn't ask those impairments. In fact, as a matter of fact, Easton would say that those are the things in which he chooses to be identified by post-resurrection. So I think, um, and I let I, I like to allow people to kind of develop their own theology of disability, but I think if we start there with the incarnation and we also start with Jesus's reversal of death, but not reversal of the disabling marks that from his torture, uh, you can see in there some point of identification between the post-resurrection Jesus and his ability to identify with physical impairment. Um, and from there, I think that that's a good, healthy place to start to think about how God's image um, relates to persons with disabilities, seeing as if you choose to understand that Jesus, if you read the text for what it is, Jesus chooses to remain that way. Um, so what does that say about how God identifies and how his image can be seen? And then also, you know, always think about John nine, why was this man born blind? And Jesus says, neither. Right. And he, and I say in my book, uh, Jesus switches the question from why can't this man see to how can God be seen in his life so that there's no distortion of God's image because of disability. So I think those are three places to sort of start working on your own theology of disability. Wow. Very profound. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lamar. Robbie, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I don't really have anything to add other than to say I had, I had the privilege of having Nancy Eastland as a professor at Emory when I was there um, before she passed away. And I learned so much from that book. It's a very small book, uh, The Disabled God, um, but it is very weighty uh, in what it contains in, the, in that those few pages. Um, I think particularly the thing that stands out to me is her characterization of the Eucharist as where we encounter a disabled God um, and what that means for how we think about God, right? Um, and think about ourselves and re-envision a Christian community. Um, it, it's an amazing book. And uh, so I'll just kind of leave it there. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry that I don't have more time to uh, ask you to answer some of these other great questions that have been submitted, but I want to give um, the panelists a chance to talk about their upcoming work. Um, you know, they've obviously done a tremendous amount of um amazing work already and uh, I always love to hear you know what's next what are you thinking about what are you working on what's what's in the future for you so Diana could you start us off on that well I'm preparing these lectures on on history and I identity and why this argument is really important right now um, and that's kind of launching me into a couple of different projects this year this is kind of a quirky thing that I'm sure a lot of people aren't thinking about, but it's actually very important in terms of history, in terms of progressive Christianity in the United States. On May, I believe it's the 22nd um, this year, will be the 100th anniversary of one of the most significant sermons in American history. And that sermon was, will, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Uh, by Fosdick at uh, Riverside Church. He preached this great sermon uh, laying out sort of the battleground between fundamentalists and liberal Christianity a, a hundred years ago. And I keep thinking about that. You know, what's the state of, of especially Protestantism, American Protestantism, a hundred years later? 
And, um, you know, if Heather Cox Richardson is thinking about the South winning the Civil War, I've been thinking about, well, maybe fundamentalists actually won the religious war and we just kind of got to figure this out and get on with it. Um, so anyway, uh, that's just something I'm reflecting on. And I will probably be writing an article about that. And, um, you know, so I welcome conversation about it. And then my other piece is I'm working on a new book and it's tentatively called Rupture. And it's about living in times that are are broken and uh, what does that mean and how do we move ahead as and, and it, it, it might even tie in with the disability work my brain was just flying when Lamar was talking is how do we live as a broken people in a broken world and what is what does that look like um, for our faith communities so what you talked about earlier in terms of truth is that gonna be in there too Oh, yeah. Well, this whole idea of uh, the thread, the through thread on all of it is how we tell stories of the past, honestly, and how that reshapes our identity and empowers us to be able to face the issues and concerns we have uh, going forward. Very cool. Very cool. Wonderful. Bobby, how about you? Um, Well, uh, I am uh, continuing to uh, sort of write every week at Substack and trying to think about uh, what what being white too long means uh, in everyday life uh, for, for American Christians, white Christians, uh, and then working on a new book. Um, I'm actually kicking off. I'm on a writing retreat right now, as a matter of fact, kicking off uh, kind of this, this new project where I'm going to be looking at uh, four communities in the country that in this moment, I, I love that idea of uh, rupture and this this kind of moment of you know troubled waters um, that are trying to tell the truth about their own local communities' histories and what that looks like, what the barriers have been, uh, where the landmines are, um, and and what makes it successful uh, and and what it brings to life. I think that's the other thing is that I think most of the criticisms about dredging up a difficult past are, oh, it's just going to stir up trouble. It's just going to bring negative things. But I think what I'm finding and looking at these histories is that it's actually breathing new life into these communities and bringing healing uh, to these communities and putting them on a path they, there's no other way they would be on. And so I think that word of hopefulness is, is one that we haven't quite gotten enough of that it's not just, we don't do this work just to kind of, you know, take a whip and beat ourselves with it. I mean, we do this work um, uh, to find, you know, healing. Right. And, and I think of, um, Lamar, I, I'm also a, uh, I'm a cancer survivor, stage three cancer survivor. And, uh, you know, one of the things I remember about that treatment phase, right. Is that you think the treatments may get, is maybe going to kill you. Um, and, and, and it, it feels really awful. Uh, but the reason why we all sign up for it, who find ourselves in that spot is because we think that awful treatment is going to bring us to a place of health. And I think in many ways, that's where we are as these communities, that the only way through uh, is to kind of go through that, that experience of difficulty and, and, and healing um, and, uh, and come out the other side. So it's kind of, for me, it's been a kind of living metaphor for, um, you know, how we come to kind of social healing as well. Mm, wow. Very powerful. Thank you. Lamar, you kind of alluded a little bit to, you know, your ongoing work. Can you tell us more about uh, where that's headed? Yeah, I'm, I'm like in the very early stages. I actually got with my agent and we're preparing to start pitching the book. She loved the idea, but essentially um, going a little bit deeper um, than my last book, Disability in the Church, is more for the church. Um, but I want to talk about the churches and the impact that the church has had on even the definition of disability and how it's been utilized to the church's advantage um, throughout the history of the country. But then also really sort of the, the thesis is to talk a little bit more about uh, what what Eastland talks about and also talk about why there are such starts um, rejections of that. Um, and part of that is my thesis is that, you know, whether you want to read it, uh, those texts about Jesus post resurrection as purely literary or as literal, you can't deny what she's talking about. So my overarching thesis is that part of the reason that is, is because we have always had this ableist ideology wrapped up in our religion, in our practice, in our rhetoric. Uh, so in an effect, 
uh, there's sort of this idea in the next book about this just discrimination against God, right? If if God is disabled, why don't we see it in the early literature? Uh, I can't find it in the literature and sermons or songs, right? There's just stark rejection of viewing Jesus in that way, even though we can see it in the text. And and so I contend that it's it's ableism is so wrapped up in Western Christianity. That's why we reject that notion. But there are huge implications from there on out, um, because if we center all the society around our understanding of disability and the church is largely even going back to the 1600s with the pureness, if they're largely in charge of what that definition is and how it's used, everything else that was um, used to develop as societal structures is based off the antithesis of that. So we got to even think about things like healthcare, right? If white male bodies were central to what it meant to be healthy, um, that might explain why we have things like uh, higher rates of of maternal deaths in African-American, because we're basing everything off of this idea um, that really stems from a rejection of disability, even if it is attributed to God. So I know that's a mouthful, but um, I think there's a lot there that we need to unpack. And so that's what my, my next book I'm working on now, which we're getting ready to pitch. Wonderful. Well, good luck with that. And, uh, you know, thanks for taking the time and energy to uncover things that, you know, have been overlooked and, uh, you know, yet another set of things swept under the rug. So, so thank you very much for that. And thank you all for all of your great work. Um, I love spending time with you guys. I know everyone really appreciates, you know, hearing from you kind of openly and honestly about um, your worlds and your concerns and, um, you know, the hope that we have that things will get better. So um, this is the, the eighth and, and uh, the final of the current round of um, these um, panels, but uh, we'll do another one uh, probably in the April, May timeframe with uh, four additional webinars. And so stay tuned for hearing more about those. But for now, thank you so much, everyone. Um, and um, God bless. <laughs>